Welcome back to Fan Drive Time. I'm Blake Murphy. This segment's going to be just like a little 519 uh, Cambridge in the region appreciation segment. That song we're playing back uh, into is from a band called Soft Cult from Kitchener. And our next guest is from that area, like me. Uh, Joining us now, Sportsnet's uh, lead coverage for uh, the NCAA Women's Tournament and all sorts of great work across Sportsnet and a number of other platforms. Haley McGoldrick. Haley, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Blake? I am excellent. Uh, no bracket busting on the women's bracket just yet. It's lasted longer than the men's bracket, thankfully. Um, you are, like, your coverage plan right now for Sportsnet for the women's side of the tournament, which tipped off today, uh, seems to be watch 16 games at once and try to absorb it all and then filter it all for us. Um, what has today been like so far? What does your weekend look like as you try to juggle all of this? Yeah, it's a lot of consumption, although, I mean, good for my coverage, bad for some of the teams. There's been a lot of blowouts, which is kind of nice because there's a point where, you know, when there's a 40-point deficit, you kind of say, okay, I think they're running away with this game. Um, Like you said, there's not a lot of bracket busting yet on the women's side. But right now, it's just a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to see, you know, the teams like Iowa and South Carolina dominating early and saying, we want to be in the Final Four right now. Again, no offense to the teams who are 16 seeds and just snuck in or 15 seeds, but that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to consume as much as I can, but also those games that are a little bit lopsided. We knew that South Carolina and Iowa probably weren't going to get upset in the first round, so those aren't more of my worries as opposed to the games that are 8-9 seeds that are a little closer so that's what I'm doing at the moment. Or even 7-10 seeds. At least one Arizona got it done uh, this <laughs> week. So that's great. Um, the, the You mentioned Iowa. That game's uh, got a couple minutes left, but it's 85-41 to 41 right now. So it's basically done. Um, but Caitlin Clark fell off. No triple-double. Only 26 points, 12 assists, 7 rebounds. Um, the jokes aside, you did have Iowa going to uh, your final four. I believe they were the only non-one seed uh, you had going there. You had them knocking off Stanford. Does Caitlin Clark just put them in the conversation in absolutely any game, even if it's against a team that's that's deeper and more established than the rest of this Iowa team? Oh, absolutely. You look at a team like Indiana. Indiana is a one seed for the first time in program history. And in the regular season, they had two losses. One was against Michigan State. Grace Berger was hurt. She's their star player. Second one against Iowa, Caitlin Clark hits a dagger buzzer beater three. That's game. She's just the difference maker. All season, she's had only three games with less than 20 points, and her lowest was 15. If you're still contributing 15 points a night, that's it's not bad. She's averaging a turnover less than her last two years. She's fouling less. She's more careful with the ball. She's shooting 37% from three, which is not as good as her freshman year, but still an upgrade from last year. She really is just a game changer. But I think the biggest thing about Iowa and why I have them going so far, there's two things. One is that Stanford is so reliant on Cameron Brink and Haley Jones. And that's about it. If you find a way to stop Cameron Brink and Haley Jones, you can stop Stanford. And the Pac-12, you look at the way that they closed out their Pac-12 play. They lost two of their last three games. Yes, they were to rank teams, but they lost four times all the conference opponents. Two were unranked. And they have two star players, and their depth is just not there. Whereas a team like Iowa, they have a little bit more depth. Um, Monica Sinano has been a huge help. She scored 26 points in the Big Ten Tourney Championship game where they blew out my beloved Buckeyes. And yes, Caitlin Clark is that difference maker, but they're a little bit more deep. Um, Like I said, Sinano is a big target for Clark's assists. Obviously, Caitlin Clark is a triple-double machine. Um, (laughs) So I just think they kind of have 
that edge, and that's why they could beat a team like Stanford. Obviously, Haley Jones and Cameron Brink are both incredible players, and they're not as easy to stop. That's the problem. That's why they've won so many games. But if Iowa can find a way to stop those two, they'll have an easy route to the Final Four. Now, how much of this should I believe, and how much of this should I just think is part of your Big Ten agenda? Because I know you, you're a big Indiana fan. Uh, you're big big fan of just uh, a lot of the Big Ten teams in this tournament. What, what has stood out to you this year about the quality of that conference that has you so confident in uh, a number of those teams doing pretty well? Well, the Big Ten had seven berths this year, which tied the SEC, and we all know, SEC is queen of basketball. Everything runs through the SEC. The Big Ten matched that. And Indiana, like, I loved it two years ago when Indiana made history, made the Elite Eight for the first time in program history. Last year, they're out during the Sweet 16. This year, they came back, won the Big Ten regular tournament. And they're another team who, it doesn't just run through one player. And I think that's the biggest thing that I love about the Big Ten. So there's Grace Berger. There's also Mackenzie Holmes. They play really well together. They have really good motion. They move the ball well. Chloe Moore McNeil is a junior who's playing amazing. Yarden Garzone is a freshman, a 6'3 guard, who is incredible. She dropped 17 points in her debut. And then you've even got fellow Big Ten players who see what's going on in Indiana and want to be part of that. Sarah Scalia, she used to play for Minnesota. She was incredible for Minnesota. But Minnesota had a losing record in the Big Ten. And that's the thing. Yes, you're going to have these non-conference wins over sometimes good teams, sometimes random teams, but you want to win in Big Ten play. That's how you get better seeding in March Madness. That's how you become a dominant program. And unfortunately, under Lindsey Whalen, they had a losing record in the Big Ten. So Sarah Scalia went from Minnesota to Indiana, went and won a Big Ten regular season championship, is a number one seed. It's just incredible to watch. Even for me, obviously, like I said, I love Ohio State. <laughs> they're a team who, they're a number three seed. They're a team that started off 19-0 and this year. They fell off at the end, absolutely lost six of the last 10 games, got blown out by Iowa in the Big Ten tournament final, but they made it to the final. They beat Indiana in the semifinals, and they're also a team that they had J.C. Sheldon last year scoring 20 points per game. She missed most of the season with injury. She's back to the Big Ten tournament now. There's just a lot of really amazing players to watch, and obviously there isn't every single conference, but I just think the strength and depth of a lot of these teams is why these Big Ten teams are so good. So you mentioned that they were tied with the SEC for the most births, and I think we can turn it now uh, to some CanCon, which, of course, uh, a lot of people who tune into the NCAA tournament, men's and women's side, uh, find a rooting interest pretty quickly because of Canadians. There are 53 Canadians in the tournament across, uh, across the two tournaments, 29 on the women's side. Uh, probably no one who will be in bigger spots than Leticia Amahir, who plays for uh, South Carolina, who are the number one seed in the tournament, might graduate the number one pick in the WNBA draft in Aaliyah Boston. Uh, they've got Bria Beal as well. Um, no shortage of high-end talent there. Just how strong is that team and just how big a contributor is Letitia going to be if they do pull this off as the, the tournament's number one overall seed? And I had, I'm sure you saw, but I had South Carolina in my final four and I have them winning the whole thing. The culture that Don Staley has created there is absolutely incredible. And I think the biggest thing about that team is that they handle everything with such humility. Aliyah Boston has said everyone who comes in here wants to be this. And for Leticia Amma here, she was a bigger player last year. Now she comes off the bench a bit more. She's still averaging 7.1 points, 3.4 rebounds. She's shooting 49.4%, which is amazing. She's very versatile. I think that's her biggest strength on a team that is full of a lot of talent. Um, it says Don Staley said that she's the most versatile player she's ever coached. I took that from Orrin Whitefield, the talented man who does all the CanCon for Sportsnet. But 
she, you know, she's incredible. She was the difference in the SEC championship, and that's where teams go deep, right? That's the biggest thing. The SEC is so talented. You have LSU, whether you like Kim Mulkey or not as a person, she's an incredible basketball coach. They've got an incredible program going on there. You have to play Tennessee. The SEC is so tough to play in, and they went undefeated. They didn't lose a single game. Of course, there were some close games. They, they beat UConn by four. They beat Stanford by five. But the UConn team is just unreal. And Letitia's role coming off the bench, she's an incredible bench player. They're reliant on her. She's still playing up to 20 minutes a night. She's not just sitting on the bench and contributing a basket here or there. She's a dominant player on both sides of the ball. So uh, let's keep it Canadian there. Uh, Letitia is a lot of fun to watch. It, great she's embraced that bench role. Um, if anyone's watched uh, the women's national program, either, either at the junior or the senior level, uh, over the last few years, she's been a part of that uh, when healthy and available. Someone who figures to be a, a big, big part of that uh, in the future as well and a big, big part of this tournament. If a non-one seed is going to make a deep run, uh, you look at Aaliyah Edwards from UConn, who not only does she stand out immediately because of the talent and because of... Uh, uh, you know, the the long braids with, with the yellow braids mixed in there. Um, but she is, you know, one of the coolest and most fun one-on-one players uh, to watch in this tournament. Got to see a lot of, of UConn over the course of this season because UConn still kind of got that that halo for nationally televised games where everyone remembers every year UConn's a contender. Um, what? How far away is UConn from getting back to that point is it a matter of waiting one more year for edwards to take another step as a senior next year um could they be in the mix as soon as this year with some of these really powerful number ones i think it's a combination of a few things and i think that they are still a bit of a year away and that's to no one's fault because when you lose a player like Paige beckers you're you're not going to be the team that you can be at your full potential and that's not a slight to edwards she's doing incredibly averaging 16.6 points, 9.2 rebounds. She dropped double-doubles in the last three games of the Big East Championship. She's incredible. Azzy Fudd's incredible. Dorka Juhas is incredible. But when you lose a playmaker like like Paige Beckers, that's huge. And Fudd was even out for a few games with a knee injury. This UConn team has just been hit by injuries in the last two, three years. They've been a team where sometimes they're running with eight, nine players. There was one game this year they had to give up because they literally did not have enough people to suit and suit up and play it was insane and obviously they came back in march and they know how to win in march that's the thing i know in my brain to never doubt gino ariama because he knows how to win in march uconn has had 14 consecutive final four appearances that is absurd i was 12 the last time (laughs) that they missed a final four it's just insane and yes they had uncharacteristic losses this year they lost back-to-back games for the first time in, oh God, I don't even know the last time they did that. I can't remember the stat, but it was something absurd too. They never lose back-to-back games and they lost to like Marquette of all people, but they they know how to win in March and I can see them making a deep run. But again, there is a team like Ohio State in that Seattle free region. Virginia Tech just got the number one seed for the first time in their program history. They're really hyped up. The ACC is another very talented conference to play in. So they're going to have a little bit of a harder route, but Edwards is really the leader of this team. She's dominant. No, she's not really a scoring threat from the outside, but she's big. She will go to the hoop. She has a great mid-range game. She's the leader of this team, and they do have a lot of talent on this team. They've just been plagued by injuries. But now if they have some sort of health, they're just coming off a Big East title, I think they have what it takes 
two go to the final four. Granted, no injuries happen during the tournament. Haley, those are the, the big name Canadians and the teams they play for. There are also six teams in this tournament that are a little lower seated and have multiple Canadians. Uh, we certainly won't push listeners to cheer for Duke. We're just not going to do that. Uh, but, <laughs> bet- but between Arizona, East Carolina, Iowa State, Miami, Washington State, all those teams with multiple Canadians. Uh, is there one of those that you think could make a little bit of noise? And we'll be talking about, um, you know, on the men's side, it's always kind of ended up being Oregon the last 10 years or so that always ha- seems to have a bunch of Canadians uh, in the program. Could you see any of those lower seeded teams with a few Canadians breaking through this weekend? I really like Arizona. I really like the style of play they have. Shana Pellington is one of the Canadians, and mm-hmm. she's been a part of the national program. She was also part of that squad that made that deep run two years ago that was kind of heartbreaking um, when they lost. But I really like Arizona as well as Miami. I'm not really uh, a huge uh, Miami fan when it comes to most ACC play, but I really love their women's basketball team. And I think they're another team that could go pretty deep as well. And I would say Iowa State, too, maybe the three of them. But Arizona, for sure. Like I said, I really love watching Shana Pellington play. She's just stepped up when she's needed for Canada, for Arizona. She knows her role. She's a great role player. And I really love watching her play. And as a seventh seed, I think that they could make some noise. Well, Haley, I I know we're in like this tiny little uh, lull right now where where none of the games are are super, super close uh, late. But I know that we've got three games on right now and another couple starting shortly. So uh, we'll let you go here. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Um, And thank you for the the tournament preview at sportsnet.ca. It was a great way to get ready for this tournament. Look forward to all your coverage uh, over the next couple weeks. Thank you so much, Blake. Haley McGoldrick, you can check out her NCAA tournament coverage uh, at sportsnet.ca over the next couple weeks. Loads of Canadians, 29 Canadians on the women's side of the tournament, 24 uh, on the men's side, including uh, Zach Eady, who will probably end up talking uh, about with Dan Schulman a little later. That game tonight, the Zach Eady game, happens to to start right after the show wraps. That's a nice little... uh, piece of fortunate timing for me as Purdue takes on Farley Dickinson. Um, Pretty fun night. Definitely check out um, those UConn games if you can on the women's side. Um, We're now joined by this is this is tough i I really would have preferred to schedule this and this is my fault nobody else's uh, to have john axford at the start of a segment so i could play him in with some music because he is obviously the the baseball player with the best music taste that there is um john axford joins us now pitcher for team canada at the world baseball classic john gotta ask you man we didn't get to hear on the broadcast what your tune-up music was when you came out of the pen i know everyone was doing canadian songs with that team what'd you come out to uh, nothing. I don't think, I think they just gave me a random song. Unbelievable. Um, we were, yeah, we were allowed to choose, but I think uh, our choices were only going to be played if you moved on to the next round. So unfortunately, uh, my choice of refused new noise, got to go with what I've gone with most of my career, um, was not played. So I think they just gave us random Canadian artists, which wasn't bad, but quite honestly, I wouldn't even have noticed i think what song was playing i basically blacked out see the the broadcast made it seem as if this was all very meticulously done i know you've been a clubhouse playlist guy in the past Uh, i thought you'd have the insight for us you said you almost blacked out uh maybe more pitchers (laughs) should do that because you're coming off of a couple years off and a couple injuries and you're throwing 95 well what got into you last week man (laughs) i think i think that's just the competition in me i think that's uh 
throw some hitters in the box and a, a little different version of me that I guess doesn't really exist in life anywhere else other than on that mound comes out. So I, I could throw as many bullpens as I wanted here in Burlington. Um, indoors, I, I can never reach that velocity um, unless it's in a game and unless the hitter's in the box. So it's it, it just becomes a different animal for me. Did you, like, what was the hardest you, you threw? I, I know you posted a lot about your ramp up as you were deciding whether you could play and, you know, kind of getting back in shape and posting videos of some of your workouts. What, how close to 95 did you get uh, kind of in the lead up and how surprised were you when you saw the, the radar gun light up 95? Um, I hit 90 twice. <laughs> that was that was about it off the That's mound anyway. That's a big jump. I, I, yeah, I know I could uh, throw a little bit more, but I, I did a little bit of work just trying to, like, really throw my body into it, did some, um, like, long toss or some body movement work, um, you know, moving the legs and, and getting everything going through my body just to see what my arm could do. And I was able to get it up to 91, 92, but once I got on the mound – uh, my mechanics just became a little more meticulous, and I think it's also maybe a little bit more mental because the last time I did pitch, I blew out my elbow, so I'm sure that's mm. just sitting in my mind without without my body even knowing it. Um, but once again, once I knew once a hitter stepped in, um, my velocity would go up because that, that's happened actually in my entire career, even in my prime, you know, throwing 95, 96 uh, average, you know, in games, I would throw my last warm-up pitch um, 91. And I, I, it was brought to my attention one time, you know, 10 plus years ago. Um, some guys asked me like, are, are you trying to throw hard in your warm up?" So I was like, I, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> so I finally paid attention and looked up one time and I saw my last pitch, you know, before the catcher throws it down, you, you kind of cut it loose and it said 91. And I was like, man, that's, that's all I got today. And then first, you know, first pitch of the inning was 95 or 96. So it's just because the hitter steps in, you know, a little bit changes. So to see the 95 up there, um, I was excited. I made jokes saying with some of the guys, like if I threw 95, if I saw a 95 up there, I would just walk off the mountain and retire <laughs> right on the spot. But, but it was a big spot and I was, I was feeling good. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was nice to see, that's for sure. So you are through it now, and you did touch 95. You had a clean inning in your appearance. I know that the, that a lot has gone into this since your injury late in 2021, um, coming back to this point. And, you know, I, I know that we, we could joke around about it a little bit, and you're, you're about to turn 40, sorry to reveal that to everyone. Um, but does a part of you <laughs> now coming out of that, having gotten all the way back, having touched 95, having had a successful inning, um, where's your headspace at in terms of like what your, what your future with throwing a baseball looks like right now? You know, I haven't given it too much thought in all honesty. I think um, uh, after the pandemic, after my injury in 19 and then kind of trying to come back and the pandemic hitting and I didn't really think I was going to pitch again then, but pitching for team Canada in 2021 and the velocity being there and coming back, but then ultimately resulting in an injury, um, it's just a lot. It's a lot on the body at this point. You know, I had Tommy John surgery when I was 20 and that's a little different recovery uh, <laughs> from when you're 38 and 39. Um, although, you know, I'm stronger and I, and I have a little bit more, um, I guess, idea of how to come back and how to, you know, understand my body through injury. Um, even after two outings, you know, the, the exhibition against the Cubs and the one outing in a WBC, man, my elbow, <laughs> it definitely felt like I threw hard, you know, mm -hmm. um, I haven't done it that often over the last, uh, uh, you know, few years, 
obviously with a, a month and a half or a couple months, I guess, in, in 2021 with Canada and then, you know, AAA for a little bit and then back in the big leagues. So I haven't, you know, I haven't given it much thought other than I knew 18 plus months ago after I had my surgery that this is what I was going to shoot for. I just wanted to pitch for a team in Canada and the WBC. Uh, if that was it, you know, that's kind of it. And I could go out on my own terms and hopefully not blow my elbow out while I was on the mound like I did in Milwaukee. Uh, not many players get to do that. So, uh, yeah, about to be 40 right now. It just feels good that I was able to pitch the way I did and come back from that injury and, and um, give my team an opportunity to, to win that ball game. How special was it, too, that you were able to be down there and a lot of like family and friends from around baseball down there, to be sure, but your two sons being down there with you and being old enough to really understand, you know, that their dad is pitching it for Team Canada in the World Baseball Classic. Um, how much extra did that add for you versus, you know, other baseball experiences in your life? That was awesome. It really was. Um, probably the highlight for me um, after I pitched against the Cubs. My, you know, my kids were there, my parents were there. So it was great to um, experience that and actually, you know, really kind of absorb it and take it in as much as I could. Um, even walking off the mound against the Cubs, you know, I, I looked up at, at them and, and waved and even blew them a kiss because they were standing up and, and fired up. And even when I was in the dugout, they kept looking at me and giving me thumbs up and was making me emotional even, you know, during an exhibition for Team Canada in a spring training game for the Cubs. I was, I was feeling a lot of emotions. Um, coming off the mound with Team Canada, um, yeah, there was a, a big wave of emotion, I think, there too. Um, I had 15 family members up in the stands. So I had uh, uh, three of my sisters, um, two brother-in-laws, three nieces, three nephews, my two sons uh, my, and my parents. So it was, uh, you know, a big ticket number up there, but I also knew where they were because I could see them and I could hear them. And, and coming off the mound, I, I looked up to them and all of them standing up and cheering and, and specifically seeing, you know, uh, my sisters, my parents, my, uh, my kids, um, you know, just going back to my sisters and my parents, they've been through a lot with me through, you know, my entire career. So having them all there for what may have been my last pitch on a mound, um, you know, within that sort of competition was, was pretty, was pretty spectacular and pretty special. I, I was about to quite honestly about to cry coming off the mound, waving up at them. I was waving my glove and, and then Bo Naylor kind of snapped me out of it, uh, which was great. because <laughs> He came running over and was like, Hey man, I haven't caught you before, but your fastball was coming out pretty good. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but overall, overall that moment, uh, it couldn't have been any better. It really couldn't. I was um, more than uh, happy to have been able to share that, that moment with my kids and, and have them experience it. And it was something uh, pretty special for them too, because they were, they were pretty locked in and excited through all those games. Let, let's fast forward a little bit and, and your kids are, are 30 now. Um, what do you think they're going to brag about more that they saw their dad pitch at the world baseball classic or that their first concert was Alexis on fire. I, I don't know which one of those is going to hold up as even cooler. I'm not too sure either. Uh, I got a great, uh, I was just looking at some pictures today, reminiscing of, of the trip with all the family and everything. And we got a picture with all 16 of us, myself and my 15 family members down in the, down in the tunnels after one of the games. And, and one of my sons is, is actually wearing his Alexis on fire t-shirt that he got nice. at, the, at the concert as well. So that was pretty cool. It's something that they, they still love wearing. Both of them love wearing those shirts. So I mean, it depends on the context, I guess. You know, if someone brings up music, I'm sure they'll be like, oh, yeah, how about my first concert? But if they bring up sports, maybe 
maybe they'll they'll brag about me too. We'll see. It tops my uh, Great Big C as my my first concert. It's very new for you of me, but not quite as cool as the Lex on Fire. What what was yours? Do you recall? Yeah, you know what? It, I should, and I honestly don't. And I, it must have been because it's not that spectacular. Um, <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember the one the, the biggest one that I like. Maybe just also because I played sports so much and I didn't have time a lot in high school, but I know I saw some some bands, um, but maybe just didn't quite pay attention enough. Uh, but the biggest one that I remember is actually uh, my freshman year in university. Uh, Notre Dame used to put on different concerts all the time, and I ended up actually getting kicked out of it because uh, apparently you weren't allowed to crowd surf. Um, and it was SR 71. Wow. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember that band? Yes. Yeah. I, I got kicked out for crowd surfing, um, at the concert. So, um, I, I, I stopped crowd surfing for a little while, but then, then got right back into it if I could. Yeah. I feel like it, I don't even know. <laughs> I, I'd have to be there of course, but I don't know how much it's a crowd. Surf. Like I've seen you in pits at shows and you're just like, you might yeah. just be too big. Um, and, and that's where they draw the line. They just tell you it's a rule, even though, uh, even if it's not a rule, uh, most people know you as, as a, as a movie guy. And I know that uh, you talked to Adnan Verk and John Morosi a little bit about the, the Oscars and things like that. Um, but you're also a huge music guy. W- what do you have um, on the, the kind of spring dock do you have any concerts coming up you're really looking forward to any albums coming out you're really looking forward to what's the the john axford music uh itinerary the next little bit here yeah as far as albums go i'm not sure i think i always just kind of depends on where my mind is i haven't looked recently uh in expectation of certain ones other than maybe the new metallica album because i think i looked immediately to see if they were playing uh in Toronto, which I don't think they are. And then even the Bay Area, I think I was on that tour, which I'm not sure they are either. And I was like, oh, that's odd. You got um, Montreal. Maybe, maybe you could maybe make the Montreal trip oh. or something. There you go. They got that one. But uh, I have to dig a little deeper and see what's coming out. I feel like lately I'll just pop on, you know, iTunes or Spotify or something and then also see some new albums just got released. And I was like, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't realize this band was putting out an album. Um, and then I, then I always look into the tours and, and see what they're doing after that. But right now, I don't know, like there's, there's a few different ones. A lot of them seem to be, I, I keep seeing a lot of the big, huge venue, um, you know, like where there's like 60 bands showing up and things like that. And some of them are these massive, massive shows. So, you know, maybe I'll try and pop into one of those and catch a couple bands that I've never seen. You know, I see that like system of a down is coming back in and, and some of these big shows and they've always been a band that I've wanted to see. As far as locally, I mean, I am going to see uh, the Blink-182 show coming up. Nice. Um, looking forward to that, Turnstile, right? And then, um, I, I mean, you already brought it up, but this this Alexis on Fire show uh, with Pup, Mets, um, that's that's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm trying to figure out um, if my kids are going to want to attend that one as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe we get some, uh, some grass seats for that one. Um, and actually, one of my... Uh, favorite bands of all time that I've never seen before and uh, saw they're actually playing in Buffalo and Toronto. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll catch both if I can, but uh, Sepultura is on tour with creator who I've never uh, really listened to before, but Sepultura for, I don't know honestly how or why they became like my first big metal band that I ever started listening to uh, right around uh, the roots album. Um, and I've never seen them live. So um, I think I'm going to go check one of those shows when I can and, and 
just listen to some good metal from from decades past. Well, and, that, and I guess decades now too, because they put out albums still very frequently, and they're still great when I listen to them. Well, the nice thing is when they're here, they're at the Danforth, which is like the venue where where a tall, people don't get mad uh, at the tall person um, because of the slanted perfect. floors and everything. You're, you're all right. Uh, people people won't be too upset. But it does mean, John. Uh, I know your elbow's aching right now, but that does mean like two hours of standing on, on the the concrete floor. So get ready. Hey, that's that's no problem for me. If I can move around and get bounced around a little bit, that's all right. Most of the time, because I'm the tall guy, you know, in those pits or um, even on the side, uh, like you said before, I'm, I'm too big for the crowd surfing. Generally, people don't. Uh, I, I mean, I don't try anymore either because I think I realize my size. <laughs> maybe maybe when I was a little bit skinnier, I, I did it before it shows. But now I just worry about getting kicked in the head when people try and get up um, and you know get start getting pushed around. But yeah, I'm always, I'm always there. I, I try and, you know, get get the knees ready, get the elbows ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just kind of bounce around, go with the flow. Well, I'm sure I'll see you at one soon. Um, man, hope you have a, a great couple weeks ahead. Concerts with the kids. Uh, that sounds like something there. The World Baseball Classic is something they're going to remember, and you're going to remember for a really long time. Uh, thanks for taking the time out today, man, and thanks for taking the time out for, for Team Canada at the World Baseball Classic. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. John Axford. Pitcher for Team Canada at the World Baseball Classic, former Rookie of the Year, the guy with the longest Wikipedia page in all of baseball, I think. Uh, All-around good dude. Um, Speaking of all-around good dudes, we can keep it baseball, but maybe touch back on a little bit of NCAA after the break. Uh, Dan Schulman joins us next on Fan Drive Time on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Fan Drive Time. Happy Friday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy uh, 20 minutes until my weekend. I'm Blake Murphy. Ben Ennis is off for March break. Hope if you have kids, uh, you've had a wonderful March break. We got one segment left. We say the best for last. Play-by-play voice of the Toronto Blue Jays uh, and of the ACC tournament, which was just terrific because you got to see preseason number one, North Carolina, not only failed to make the NCAA tournament, but be so sour about it. They declined an NIT uh, invitation. Joining us now, Dan Schulman. Dan, how are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm in Florida, spring training. That's fun. You brought me in with meatloaf. That's fun. Like there's nothing to be sour about right now. I do my research. I I know, uh, (laughs) I know what the guests like. I got to keep you guys coming back. Um, Dan, I I haven't uh, heard yet. If you've gotten to do one of the ad reads in any of the games that you've done uh, since you returned to the blue Jays, but obviously my favorite thing that Dan Schulman brings to the Jays broadcast is the excellent wrestling ad reads. Uh, How excited are you for WrestleMania? Oh, well, that goes without saying, which is good because I don't know that I have anything to add. So this this is a little inside thing where yeah. you and and one or two others online poke fun at me. for. Well, you guys know better to know that I don't really know what I'm saying, but I, I give it my all. Like, I, I give it every, every ounce of gusto that I've got. But um, 
How how excited? I, I was more excited for Meatloaf rolling in than I am for WrestleMania. For sure. And that. to be clear, it's not really poking fun at you. I feel like more often it's poking fun at myself for actually knowing what uh, is going on in wrestling as an adult man. So um, <laughs> you're, you're all right. You are back into Dunedin, though. Um, as everyone knows, you, you do a lot of college basketball coverage as well. And, and when the NCAA tournament uh, rolls around, you kind of rejoin us on the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, what has that transition back to, to rejoining the team around Dunedin, reacclimating to what's going on down there? Uh, how's the last week or so been for you? It's wonderful. I, I mean, I won't lie. Like, I wish ESPN had the NCAA tournament. I would love to do it, but they never have. And, and since I've been there, and, and so I know the last thing I do is gonna, going to be the ACC tournament. But if you're looking for a consolation prize, coming down to sunny Florida and being around a baseball team for two weeks is a pretty nice consolation prize. So I'm, I'm not... I don't even think it like it's wonderful. It's great. I, I, I enjoy spring training. And, and one of the nice things is, you know, everybody's in a good mood. You have more access to the players. And I've gotten a chance to, to speak with, you know, just about every Blue Jay that I've been looking for, old and new alike. The first, it's always funny, doing the first baseball game at the end of basketball season and doing the first basketball game after baseball season, those are always interesting transitions because the two sports are so, so, so different. And spring training games are wonderful, but they present certain challenges, <laughs> uh, obviously, in terms wait a minute, there's two number 86s on the field right now, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, but it's great. Uh, I'm loving it. I'm excited for the season. I think they're going to have a really good year. I think they've done some really good things. Uh, in the off season, and uh, I'm I'm very 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 happy to be here. In terms of that transition uh, back to baseball, and at the risk of going a little too inside uh, media here, um, how ha- have you felt the uh, change of tempo as a play-by-play voice with the new pitch clock in your first couple games? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. And, and well, what, you know, the numbers say whatever, like 25 minutes on average or something off a game. And there, there's no question. Um, we were talking about Joe Siddle and I were talking about it in the air today. A hitter called a timeout. Uh, you know, a hitter gets one timeout per plate appearance. He called a timeout in like the seventh or eighth inning. And I looked at Joe and I said, I think that's only like the third or fourth time that anybody's even called a timeout. Now it's spring training. We may see a little more gamesmanship during the season, but the, the umpires are calling it as instructed to do in the rules and, and the game is moving. Uh, you know, games feel like they're 230, 240, something like that. And, and I'm, all in favor. We're not losing any action. I don't think we're losing any of the essence of the game. I think we're losing dead time. I think we're guys taking, losing guys taking off their batting gloves, uh, asking for a new baseball, stepping off, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, yes, I feel it. Yes, I notice it. And, and, uh, Yes, I approve of this message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I'm enjoying it for sure. It's been fun to contrast it to the WBC, where obviously those games are are tense and a lot of them have kind of a playoff atmosphere, uh, but they sure are going a, a little slower. Um, so that's one of the things you're you know getting up, getting the feel on in Dunedin, getting up to speed on. You, you mentioned you've gotten to talk to uh, a lot of Blue Jays already. Is there much left from an on-field perspective that you're really curious about with this Jays team these last two weeks, or, or is it just kind of you know get us to March 30th at this point? Yeah, no, I still think there are some things. There aren't a ton of battles, but you know the fifth spot of the rotation appears to be Yusei Kikuchi's. Like, I don't know who else it would be right now um he wasn't great today he walked the first two batters he faced he got better but it still was a little bumpy and had its ups and downs you know how is he going to finish the spring i'm curious when jose barrios comes back and how he looks like they're i think their starting pitching is good and i think it's got a chance to be very good but i still think there are a couple of unknowns about that 
heading into the season. In in terms of jobs, uh, I really think there are just two. It's the, the, the last man on the bench and the last spot um, in the bullpen. We talked about both today. Talked more about the bullpen. Um, I think seven guys are locks. I think they're obvious. I don't know if we need to go through them all, but I think seven guys are locks. The eighth guy, I don't know who it'll be. Is, is it Mitch White? You know, do you stretch him out and make him kind of a middle reliever? But he hasn't thrown in a game yet. You know, he came in with a shoulder thing, and he's getting there, and he's throwing, but he hasn't thrown in a game yet. Or do you start him on the IL and kind of stretch him out as a starter in case you need that sort of insurance? Uh, is it Zach Pop? Is it Nate Pearson? Uh, I think it's one of those three. I think one of those three guys is going to be on the opening day roster um, as the last spot in the bullpen. Nate Pearson threw two innings today. Overall, I would say it was quite good. At times, it was overpowering. At times, he struggled a little bit with his command of the secondary stuff. Um, in the first inning, I think gave up a hit and nothing more, a single and nothing more. In the second inning, gave up a leadoff double, and then the runner got to third with one out, and he allowed, he prevented that run from scoring. That's good. So some good signs for Nate Pearson. Uh, I don't know who has the inside track, but you know we're all still a little bit tantalized by the promise of Nate Pearson. The other spot is the last spot on the bench. And to me, Otto Lopez is the front runner, not because of what he did for Team Canada, the WBC, although I don't think that hurt his cause. But I think a right-handed bat is what you're looking for there, and he's a multi-positional guy with some speed. Like, he checks a lot of boxes in terms of being that last guy on the roster. You can you can play him against the lefty if Varsho or Kiermaier or Belt are sitting. If somebody on the infield needs a day off, you can put him just about anywhere. You can do a lot of things with Otto Lopez. So it's not huge things, but to me, those are the two things still to be decided. Yeah. I think those are fun things to follow. And Nate Pearson's a, a really fun one. You know, say, like you mentioned the secondary control stuff, 17 of his 19 fastballs went for strikes today. That's a really good sign. Uh, and obviously mm-hmm. he's got the velocity. Um, you know, I lean Zach pop myself. I think he, he did a pretty good job last year, but we haven't seen him uh, in the same kind of spots uh, with respect to Otto Lopez. This is one of the areas that, you know, I th- where I think, and I've only been there once, but from talking to you and Ben Wagner and Buck over the years, um, you know, where I think spring training and, and the chance to be around and talk to a lot of people in the organization really helps because what I hear from people in conversations like these about Otto Lopez is not only is there the versatility and, and the right-handed element, but it's he's a guy that the organization really likes the approach he takes, not just at the plate, but to the ballpark every day, um, the kind of teammate he is. How important is that kind of stuff, not only when you're a 24-year-old just trying to crack the roster, but when you're talking about a spot on the roster where you might only get 100, 150 plate appearances over the course of the season, how much do those intangibles come into play at the end of the roster decisions? I think the front office the last two years has been uh, very focused on intangibles and fitting in in the clubhouse and having the right kind of guys and everybody you know, striving for the same goals and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and you know, Nathan Lucas may have uh, the same intangibles, and Wynton Bernard may have the same intangible. Like, there are a lot of guys. There are a few different guys who could get the job. So um, I think it's very important. Um, you know, ultimately, you need the skill set, I, I think, too. And I think, you know, having all the intangibles um, are a bit of a bonus. But, you know, the other two guys I mentioned, I think we'll see them at some point this year. It's, uh, you know, as you well know, baseball is not a 26-man sport. It's a 40 to 50, maybe more than that sport for a for a good team and and you know even if zach pops not on the opening day roster uh we're going to see him will we see yasper zulueta will trent thornton contribute will paul fry contribute on and on and on so 
But but back to Lopez, I, I think he's earned it. He had a really good year at AAA last year, um, and he does seem. I've never. I'll be candid. I've never spoken to Otto Lopez. I, I'm uh, before this year, you know, with COVID and basketball, I hadn't been around spring training as much as I would like to, and I've yet to actually shake his hand and introduce myself. I'm looking forward to doing that, hopefully, um, in in the coming days. But I, I think he's um, everything you're looking for. I, I really do, and I and I think part of it is the transformation in the look of the roster by bringing in Belton, Kiermaier, and Varsho. Like, they're covered against righties. They're, they're totally covered against righties. But is Kiermaier going to play every day against a lefty? I don't think so. Varsho will sit a little bit. Belt will sit. And ideally, you want right-handed bats to go in there against lefties when one or two of those guys are sitting. I think one of them is Espinal goes into second, and Merrifield probably goes to the outfield. Let's call it left field. But I think there's a spot for Lopez, too. Like, you can, you can play Lopez in center field. You can play Lopez at shortstop. He played shortstop for Canada. You can play him all over the place. So um, I think from a number of reasons, I, I'm really interested to see um, what he can do. And you look at his numbers from AAA last year, like, they're not they're, – they're good. They're legit. What, what he's done, he's not just some, you know, slap-hitting singles guy. And, and, and he can do a lot of good things on a number of levels. And I think as a 26th man – can you pinch hit? Can you pinch run? Can you have, can you grind out at bats? Can you play a number of defensive positions? He does all those things. Yeah, and hey, even if you are a, a slap-hitting singles guy, which, like you said, he's not, there might be more room for those kind of guys with, with these rule changes around shifts and, and, ba- and you know, we, we're seeing about a 25% spike in, in stolen base attempts around the league where, you know, maybe a little hit-and-run action's a, a little more valuable and stuff as well. So uh, I'm yep. with you. I, I like Otto Lopez uh, a lot. I do want to pivot back quickly before I let you go, Dan, to the basketball side, just because we're a couple minutes here from uh, number one seed Purdue tipping off. And they are led, of course, by uh, unanimous All-American and, and maybe the, the favorite for the Naismith Award, uh, Chinese-Canadian Zach Eady. I know that you, over the last couple of years, have gotten a chance to call a couple of Eady's games and see him uh, a couple of times. What can fans expect from the big seven-foot-four guy? So if you've never seen him play, imagine basketball as it was 20 to 30 years ago. Um, he's huge. And he is not, he's not out there taking 18-foot jump shots. Um, he is back to the basket. They throw the ball into him. The double team comes. He either tries to power his way through it, a jump hook, or he passes out of the double team. It's like watching basketball kind of from another era. And in terms of his pro prospects, who knows, right? Like the, the NBA is so different than it used to be. Um, but he's huge. Like there are no other guys like him in college basketball, but he's not good just because he's huge. He is a skilled, smart basketball player. He's a good passer. Um, jump hook over both shoulders, although he much, much, much prefers to go over the left shoulder, meaning a right-handed jump hook. And as you well know, he's a very good free throw shooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you foul him, he will make his free throws. And just as importantly, he does not foul. I don't think he fouled out of a game this year. I don't think he came close to fouling out of a game this year. I may be mistaken on that. But he he only averaged like two fouls per game for a guy playing a lot of minutes. And that's another remarkable thing about him. He was playing an 18 to 20-minute guy the last couple of years. And now he's the guy. And a guy 7 to 4, 290 is playing 28, 30, 32 minutes a game and getting up and down the floor. He's really good. He's really special. Uh, I believe he will be, I, I don't know if he's planning on going back or coming out, um, uh, like going back for another year of school or, or, or declaring, but 
Um, you and I both know Team Canada is very the, the Canada basketball is very interested in him, and even if it's as the third center, twelfth man, they are very very interested in him. So, folks are going to see an enormous guy um, who has worked hard to turn himself into a basketball player of great skill because he didn't start playing really till he was what 12, uh, 13, 14 years old. Um, I, I and I think they're really good. They they've got a chance to go a long way. I will tell you, and maybe this is uh, recency bias, having done the ACC tournament, and people are either going to love this or hate this, Duke's playing great. Ah. And they weren't good the first half of the year. They weren't great the first half of the year. Duke's playing great right now. Um, And they've got different bodies they can throw at them. So if that would be, that would be, what, a Sweet 16 matchup, I think, if Mm -hmm. it got that far. um, I think that would be uh, a heck of a game. And And I had the game earlier this year when Purdue beat them, but Duke's a different team right now and uh wide open tournament as you know a lot of the top teams have injuries purdue does not but a lot of the top teams have injuries and you could convince me that any one of a dozen different teams could win this thing. and if if it's not duke tennessee's got a couple of seven footers as well not guys they play huge yeah. minutes to but a, a couple bodies they can show him so even if it's not duke uh, a tough test ahead but that's good right iron sharpens iron and if he does intend to uh go to the nba after the season it certainly sounds like he'd be picked somewhere in the second round and a team would see if they can continue to, you know, work on the body and work on the defense and turn him into something. Uh, But yeah, it's hard not to dream on what he could look like as a FIBA player, because some of the questions you have about his pro prospects, when you get into the FIBA environment with a different set of rules and a different, different kind of geometry, um, you know, some of those concerns quiet up a little bit. I think he's going to be a pretty good, uh, pretty good FIBA player. Um, Dan, last one before I let you go, only because we've been talking about it in training spreadsheets and stuff. Uh, we got to wait until April 29th still to, to get Canada's draw for that FIBA World Cup later yeah. this summer. Um, but how are you feeling in general? They come out of those qualifiers 11 and 1. Obviously, that's a lot of uh, a lot of the depth guys who we won't see on the World Cup roster, but we just saw Jamal Murray and Shea Gilgis-Alexander here this week. Uh, we've seen Dylan Brooks when he's not getting fined and suspended a bunch of times for being Dylan Brooks, um, where is your your kind of confidence and excitement level with the national program heading into a piv- pretty pivotal offseason? My excitement level is high, and so you're yeah you're exposing me as something that people don't know that I am, and that is a total Canada basketball FIBA nerd. And and so what I with for so to explain what I did because I had some free time at some point is I uh, for reasons unbeknownst to, I don't know why I did it, <laughs> but I texted you, here's how I think the pots are going to look when they do the draw on April the 29th. So, um, listen, Canada's in a much better spot than they were when the, when the World Cup was in China. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You know, they've improved several spots in the world rankings, as you know. So, you know, instead of being like the sixth or seventh American team slotted in, they'll be the fourth or something, you know. So they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be in a, relatively speaking, um, a weaker spot, but they are going to get, as you know, Spain or Australia, right? That's inevitable that they're going to get um, one of those two, I believe. And, and it's going to be tough. Now they can beat the other two and lose to whoever that is, Spain or Australia. They can get out to the second round. Um, but I, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned for them to make the Olympics directly from the world cup. As you know, they have to be one of the top two finishers among the America's teams. They don't have to be, it's, it's not about being the top seven overall or whatever it is. It's one of the top two amongst the Americas. I do know this. Um, the United States is not expecting, like, all the dudes or even a lot of the dudes. So, like, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't with a Sharpie, put the USA in it as being able 
to advance. And wouldn't that be that something? Oh. And then the shocker was Argentina not being there, right? Like mm-hmm. Argentina not being there. That's nice, too. What worries me, as I told you, is because the, now we're really getting deep into the weeds. <laughs> but the Philippines as a host get a spot in the top pot. So they're considered like a one seed, if you think of it in NCAA tournament terms. And if somebody like Venezuela is with the Philippines and Venezuela wins their pool, they'll get an easier, what would it be, a second-round matchup than maybe Canada would. And, and as we know, if you're looking for a thorn in, in the Canadian side, it's Venezuela, right? It, yes. It's, uh, if anybody's, if anybody's going to find it, it's going to be Venezuela. So I feel good, but it is not a lock. Um, you know, Will Bro- I, I don't feel like Brooks is going to be there, and I don't know about Murray. Like, what if Denver goes to the finals or mm-hmm. something like that? But even if you take Murray out, even if you take Brooks out, even if you've taken Wiggins out, which I think we all have, if you look at that provisional list of 14, even if you scratch off four of them, you still got a heck of a team. And that doesn't include Andrew Nemhard or, or Ben Matherin or Shaden Sharp. Um, I feel better about it than I ever have. I just really, really hope that most of them show up. I think they will. And as you know, the, the last chance tournaments are a recipe for like hard. Yeah, no, they thank just, you. I've had enough. No, thank you. Right. It, it's, you know, the old saying, it's easier to win in the Olympics than get to the Olympics. It's absolutely true. So um, I, I'm just I'm hoping they can do it. And, and uh, I think you would agree. This is the best chance they've had to do it this way in a long, long time. Absolutely. And when Zach Eady drops 40 points on Farley Dickinson here momentarily, <laughs> I'll feel even better about it. Uh, Dan Schulman, I've taken it up enough of your Friday. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Have a great weekend. All right, Blake. Thanks. You too. Dan Schulman, play-by-play voice of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, Canada basketball enthusiast. Uh, it's time for Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. We do have a Toronto Maple Leafs game tonight. They're taking on the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh it's going to be a fun one. Leafs slight, slight, slight favorites. Uh, Austin Matthews plus 107 uh, to score. William Nylander plus 145. John Tavares plus 175. Uh, we probably missed the window here with this game about to tip off. But that Purdue game, uh, they are 23 and a half point favorites in that one. Uh, that's a pretty wide favorite. I don't really know how to judge a 116 because... They're either blowouts or they're not, and you feel silly for it uh, after fun slate in the NBA tonight, although they do do a decent job limiting the marquee games on the schedule around March Madness. Um, You've got Damian Lillard hosting Boston tonight. Uh, The Celtics are minus five and a half on the road. You've got the uh, spiraling Mavericks against the just barely hanging on Lakers. Lakers favored by four and a half uh, in that one at home as well. There's a load of great sports this weekend. March Madness men's and women's tournaments. Jay's spring training still in action. Leafs tonight and tomorrow. Raptors tomorrow. UFC 286. Uh, No shortage of things to keep you on the couch. So do that. Hope you have a great weekend. That was Last Call brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. I've been Blake Murphy. I hope Ben Ennis enjoyed his Friday off. I hope you guys all have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you on Monday.